Well, this morning I took a few minutes to go upstairs to visit my friends in Jam. And I just wanted to tell you uh, what happened when I walked in. I walked in totally unannounced, and one of the little kids yelled out, Hey! Where's your Bible? (laughs) And I didn't have my Bible. And it was kind of intimidating. And I said, It's on the pulpit! I thought that was a pretty good answer. But isn't that encouraging? That is the kind of culture that we want to create here at Christ Fellowship. We should be here with our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one in the pew before you. I want to encourage you to uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. The second chapter of the book of Habakkuk. The year was 1536. John Calvin was a newly converted young man. He was in his, in his mid-twenties, raised in the Roman Catholic tradition, miraculously regenerated and converted. And within about two years of his conversion, John Calvin wrote, in my humble estimation, one of the greatest books in all of church history. It's a book entitled, The Institutes of Christian Religion. And I want to read the very first line in that book. It's the first sentence in the Institutes that sets the tone for the whole rest of the book. And he says this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. You want to know what it is that is the most important thing to know and understand and grasp? It's right here. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. I want to focus for a moment on the first part of Calvin's statement. Calvin suggests that if we are to possess true and sound wisdom, let me take a little bit of liberty here. If we are to be well-rounded individuals, if we are to be, to make it more contemporary, Christians who have it together, If we are to be the kind of well-rounded men and women and boys and girls in the sight of God, we must know Him. We need to get to know God. And tragically, we are seeing more and more people turn away from the biblical portrait of God. Now... It will not surprise you at all if I told you that the world is turning away, more accurately put, the world has turned away from the biblical vision of God. We know that. But what is shocking to me, and I trust will be shocking to you, is that we are seeing more and more people in the church turn away from the God that is painted in the Scriptures. Not long ago, I requested a book to review from a Christian publishing house by a professing Christian. And I received the book in the mail, and essentially what the author is saying is this. He says that he is on a mission to fundamentally transform the classical view of God. May I tell you this morning, there is nothing to transform 
concerning the classical view of God. I wrote the review of that book, and it was not a favorable review. And it's rare to hear back from an author, but when I saw the name of the author in my inbox and in my email, I began to sweat because I knew it wasn't going to be pretty. And I have to confess that it was a very gracious email, but the author and me disagree on this issue. There is another book that seeks to strip away the, the attribute of wrath from the divine nature. Still another book. And by the way, the, these are not secular books. These are not philosophy books. These are not psychology books. These are books written by professing Christians. This book seeks to humanize God by removing any kind of sovereignty from His character. At the core of these books is a mistaken notion, and it runs through these books, that God wouldn't judge anyone. Just to amuse me, would you raise your hand if you ever heard that notion? God isn't going to judge anyone. He is a loving God. Oh, you must run around with the same people I do. He's a loving God, therefore He would not judge anyone. We are told more and more that God is inclusive. It's led to a theological movement referred to as inclusivism. We are told that love wins. That's what Rob Bell told us several years ago in his best-selling book of the same title. I believe deeply and passionately that it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to, to come back, to return to the biblical portrait and understanding of God. A.W. Tozer wrote his landmark bestseller, The Knowledge of the Holy, in 1961. That was a long time ago. That's over 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that he said this, Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most awe-inspiring fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. You see, what Tozer believed is that what you believe about God matters for good or for ill. He went on to say this, wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. You see, we can think that God is not a God of wrath all we want, but it's simply not true. We need to return to the biblical portrait of God. Tozer, in one additional quote, says this. And and remember, 1961, we've come so far, and it's not pretty. He says, so so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that... When that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards decline along with it. Now notice, 
He says, the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. So here's what we're faced with at Christ Fellowship. The minute we begin to lower our view of God, to that degree our worship is lessened. The minute we begin to to dethrone anything in the character of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God, the attributes of God, to that degree, our worship is not real worship. And in all practical realities, we become idolaters because we have surrendered our high opinion of God. The book of Habakkuk helps us to understand the character of God. It brings us back to where we need to be. It helps us to understand how he responds to sin. And if he responds to sin, it helps us to understand how he responds to people, both converted people and unconverted people alike. Last week, we saw how... The living God responded to Habakkuk, and we learned that his response was a timeless response. That is, the way that God responded to Habakkuk is the same way that God responds to us now. God's response applies to to you and to me today. His response is as relevant now as it was in the days of Habakkuk the prophet. Now, last week we learned two important lessons about God. Lesson number one, we learned that God never sweeps sin under the carpet. He never sweeps sin under the carpet. And we will see that in vivid display today. And then we also learned the positive message, and it is indeed one of the most important messages in all of sacred scripture, and that is that the just live by Faith. I think I heard someone say alone. Gold star. We live sola fide. We live by faith alone. And so as we, as we face this text this morning, remember this by way of introduction. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Not three, not four, only two. The believers and the unbelievers. There are only the, the Christ followers who live Sola fide, by faith alone, and then there are the Christ deniers or the unbelievers. That is, they refuse to believe. And here at Christ Fellowship this morning, we have a mixture of both kinds of people. We have a a group of Christ followers, Lord willing, that's a bunch of you. And then we have some people who are Christ deniers. People who have not yet believed in the message of the gospel. My goal this morning is that someone would walk out of church this morning saying, I believe. I I believe for the very first time. So this morning we will learn how God responds specifically to Christ deniers, to those who refuse to believe. Now the title of the message is the taunt song. The taunt song, God's response to wickedness. Now, I have to confess that I actually, I actually took the phrase taunt song. I saw it in a study Bible and I thought, there it is. That's the title of the sermon. The, the taunt song. Now, to, to taunt someone, I think we're all very familiar with it. Some of you enjoy doing it. To taunt someone is to mock someone. 
Those of you that love to watch college football and NFL football, right? Specifically NFL football. Is, I would ask you, what happens when a, a, a player taunts another player? Well, there's this little thing that, the, that the, the man in the zebra shirt pulls out of his pocket, and it's yellow. And he throws it on the ground, and it's called a penalty. A penalty called taunting. What's an example of taunting? Well, let's say you, you tackle a guy, the guy's on the ground, and then you stand over him and go, Rah! that's taunting. That's a bad thing in the NFL. It's something you, you don't want to do. But here's what we need to kind of readjust this morning. When God taunts someone, you know one thing. They deserve it. They deserve it. I want to have you look with me and stand to your feet at Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning of verse 6. This will be a longer passage than we normally look at, and so bear with me as we read this whole section of Scripture together. This is the Word of God. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will you make tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reaches of harm. You have harmed shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. From verses 6 to 14, we'll call that Act 1. Now transition to verse 15, Act 2. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your circumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand, will come around to you, and utter shame will come to your glory, uh, upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for drowning us in your goodness. 
Thank you so much for uh, the gospel this morning. We have been singing about the gospel. We, we delight in the gospel. My prayer this morning, God, is that we would uh, see you vividly portrayed in this passage of Scripture, that we would see how you respond to wickedness, that as we learned last week, you do not uh, brush sin under the carpet. You deal with it directly and proactively. Lord, we acknowledge that you are holy, holy, holy. May we see that clearly in this passage today. May your people be encouraged. May those who are among the unbelieving leave today because a work has transpired in their hearts, that the Holy Spirit has done a mighty sovereign work, and that they would leave today numbered among the believers. We would give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we think about this idea of taunting this morning, I want you to remember who it is that is doing the taunting. This, this is the Lord that is taunting the wicked man. These are the Chaldeans that God is dealing with. These are the Chaldeans that God described in Habakkuk chapter 1 as a ruthless foe. They are, according to uh, Habakkuk 1.6, a bitter and hasty nation. They were, as we learned also in, in chapter 1, pirates that plundered the nation of Judah. They took everything they could. Some of you are students of World War II history. And you know, one of the things that Adolf Hitler did and his evil henchmen is they went in and they stole all the, the... I mean, we know that he killed the Jews, as horrible as that was. But before he killed many of these Jews, he and his evil henchmen would, would go into homes of Jewish people and steal all their stuff. Their paintings and their, their musical instruments, beautiful violins and cellos and their furniture and their, their jewelry. And he would, he would take all these away for himself. If that helps you to understand, that, that's a great illustration because that's exactly what's happening in this historical context. These are pirates plundering the nation of Judah. They were a mighty military machine, speaking of the Chaldean army, as Habakkuk 1.8 says, more fierce than the evening wolves and as ruthless as an eagle hunting its prey. The Chaldeans, you'll remember, were fond of, of capturing POWs. They didn't call them POWs then, but you know exactly what I'm referring to. They were rebellious. They were arrogant. And we learn in Habakkuk 1.10 that they were idol worshipers and they were proud of it. They, they were a, a nation who despised and defiled the living God. Now, the taunt song that we'll look at in Habakkuk chapter 2, as I've already indicated, includes a, a series of woes in, in two acts or in two parts. And each of these parts have a, a predictable pattern. This will match some of your personalities, right? I know it matches mine because the same thing happens. It's, it's very predictable. And so act number one, we see three woes. And after the woe is given, or, or you might call, call it the accusation, after the accusation is leveled against the Chaldean army, then God pronounces judgment on them. 
And then we move on to Act 2 and we see the exact same thing transpiring. A brief word about woes. Now some of you, in fact I did it the other day, I'm driving down the road and I saw this eagle. And it was, a, it was like the size of a, of a medium-sized dog. It was gigantic. And you know what I said to myself? Just guess. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, this is not the woe we're talking about. Whoa. We're talking about woe. You see the difference? The woe in the Old Testament is a condemnation. God in Habakkuk chapter 2 is mocking the mockers. This is a series of woes. Let me give some examples. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18, here's what we read. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. If you live a life that is, a, a, a life that is devoid of integrity, the word of God says, woe to you. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20, woe to those, and this speaks so much to American culture, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Does that not sound like America? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 5.21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. And you say, that doesn't sound nearly as bad as the person who says the good is evil and the evil is good. But think about this. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. We know that the person who is wise in his own eyes is a man or a woman of pride. And we know from James chapter 4 that God resists the proud man. And so woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Micah chapter 2 verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power of their hand. Once again, please remember, remember the context, who it is who is announcing this series of five woes in Habakkuk 2, 6 to 19. It is the God who is holy, holy, holy. He is the one who announces, woe to you. Now, there are many things that you and I can tolerate in life. You might even be able to tolerate broccoli, right? There's a lot of things you can tolerate. This is not one of them. This is not one of them. If a woe is pronounced on you by the living God, you're finished. If you are condemned by the God who is holy, 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 you're through. You're condemned to the lake of fire for all eternity. Unless you receive God's grace, you will find that you are eternally condemned. And so, if you're here this morning and you have embraced the idea that God is only love and He is not wrath, this series of woes will shock you. If you have embraced the idea of what I like to call a domesticated God, right? The kind of, the American version of God, the, the God that is seated in the heavens in a beautiful rocking chair with a big beard, and he just sits 
and watch, watches in his rocking chair all day long, this story that we're going to look at will rattle you. And so what we need to do is we need to, to throw the, the, the emotion and the feeling side of it out for a moment, and we need to submit our hearts and our minds to the Word of God. So look with me at the first part of Habakkuk 2. Once again, we'll refer to this as Act Number 1. There are three woes in Act, in act, in act Number 1, and the first is found in verses 6 to 8. And the accusation here is the accusation of extortion. Extortion. Look at verse 6. Woe to him. He's speaking to the Chaldeans now. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. We know that as stealing. And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. You say, what's extortion? It's simple. Extortion involves the practice of taking something that doesn't belong to you. Whether it's money or possessions, sometimes through the use of force. And so when a bully demands the lunch money from a third grader, that's extortion. When a gangster uses blackmail to secure the profits of a business, this is another kind of extortion. When a crook in the inner city bribes a business person, this is extortion. You will recall that God told, and if you would if, turn, turn back to chapter 1 for just a moment. God told Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 6, that the Chaldean army would seize dwellings, not their own. He would, they would seize dwellings, not their own. That's at the end of verse number 6, chapter 1. And so the Chaldeans here are accused of, of taking what does not rightly belong to them. What is the judgment? You remember there's this pattern here. Accusation, judgment. Accusation, judgment. Here's the judgment. God says, in so many words, the pirates will be plundered. Isn't that cool? The pirates will be plundered. Now remember in the background here, if we, if we just remove the veil for a minute, Habakkuk had been asking and questioning God, why do the evil people get away with this nonsense? God, where are you? Don't you care? Well, here we get the answer in another way. The pirates will be plundered. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Now, don't, don't take this too far, but imagine that you're numbered among the Chaldeans. And that you had, you had gone into a home and you had taken all the possessions from a citizen of Judah. And then multiply it day after day after day. And then God shows up on the scene and he says, Hey, pirates, you're going to be plundered. Modern day translation, you're toast. You are dust. Can you imagine being a wicked man or a wicked woman and receiving that from the living God? There's a second accusation in Act 1. It's the accusation of greed. And it's found in verses 9 to 11. Listen how it unfolds. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. 
to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people, and you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now, greed, of course, is, is selfish gain. It's a, a selfish desire for something that doesn't belong to you. And God pronounces a very serious woe on anyone who does this. The woe is pronounced on Babylon or the Chaldean army for their evil action. The judgment. Their wealth, verses 10 and 11, essentially say their wealth will rot from the inside out. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. May I encourage you, men and women, boys and girls, that pride is, you might say, the mother's sin. This is the sin I see more than any other sin in biblical counseling, the sin of pride. I want my way on my terms, on my timetable. It's all about me. And the sin of pride must be broken in all of us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look at the third accusation in verses 12 and 13. This is the accusation of gratuitous violence. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? I read that out of the Christian Standard Bible. I couldn't resist. The translation's amazing. Here we see the accusation of bloodshed and injustice. These are the sins here that Babylon commits. And what does God do? He calls them to account. He tells them they will be accountable for this sin. The judgment, all these carnal activities will burn in the fire of God's judgments. That's, that's act one. So take that and catalog it away and then come with me now to act two. And there's two more woes here. The next woe is in verses 15 to 17. It's the woe of, and just brace yourself, because if you, if you happen to fall asleep during the reading of the word, we're going to read it again. This is brutal. This is, this is wild stuff. Verses 15 to 17. The sin of debauchery is the accusation. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You say, wait, what's, what's this all about? The woe is, hey, you got your neighbor drunk so that you could have your way with him or her. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Is there any commentary necessary at this point? This is in the Bible. And the woe is pronounced upon them. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Is anyone with me? Wow. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Hear what the Lord is doing as he goes to the Babylonian army. And he reveals their pagan practices. They are engaged in revelry. 
They are engaged in, in finding delight and pleasure in getting their neighbors drunk so that they can fulfill their every carnal fantasy. Judgment. One word, and it's easy. The judgment here is utter disgrace. They will be filled with disgrace, God says, instead of glory. Their rebellion will be exposed. Disgrace will eclipse their glory. Then look at the final accusation that occurs in verses 18 and 19. It's the accusation of idolatry. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. Now, if you're not with me yet, think about this. The, the woe is, you, you, you have an idol. Let's say this is the idol. Woe to him who says to, in this case, Chris, what's this made out of? Metal? Metal, woe to him who says to the metal, wake up! You see what's happening here? Woe to him who looks at a statue, who is worshiping the statue, and says, it's time to wake up. Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. And so God indicts Babylon for foolishly placing trust in these idols. They want these idols to awaken. And God says, this, this is crazy. You're foolish. You're placing trust in these idols. And the judgment is simply this. The judgment comes in the realization that these idols are breathless. These idols are dead. These idols have no power whatsoever. As we think about these five woes, as we think about the, the grievous sins of the Chaldean army, for some reason, a, a story popped into my mind. It's a story about a gangster. Now, why did I think about a gangster in Chicago? Well, because we're looking at him. And so I, 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 I remember the story about a gangster in Chicago, and he was guilty of all of these sins and more. He was a, a master extorter. He was a man who was filled with greed. He was a man who engaged in gratuitous violence. He's a man who kept the baseball bat in his trunk. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, like young people especially, ask your dad afterwards. He'll tell you, right? What's the baseball bat doing in the trunk? Let me give you a hint. It's not for baseball practice. This is a guy who is one of the most evil characters you could ever imagine. And then one day... He dropped dead. He dropped dead. He had a younger brother who was also a gangster. And the younger brother who was a gangster got a hold of a, a pastor in Chicago. And the pastor was approached by this man. And the, the youngster gangster said, Pastor, my, my brother has died. And the pastor knew all about this notorious gangster who had died. And uh, the pastor was asked to officiate the funeral. Yeah, that's something that I, I, I would not really probably delight in, right? What are you going to say at this funeral? Well, here's the way the conversation went. The youngster gangster said, Pastor, I only have one request of you. Only one. You can say whatever you want. Literally anything. All I ask is that you tell the church 
You tell the congregation that my brother was a saint. That's all I want you to do. And the pastor said, you know, sir, I'd be happy to do that. When the time arrived for the funeral, the pastor spoke candidly to the audience. He said, ladies and gentlemen, the man before you in this casket was a thief. The man before you was a multi-murderer. The man before you kept multiple, multiple baseball bats in his trunk. And it wasn't for baseball. The man who lies dead before you was an evil, wicked, nasty, filthy man. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Now that's a funny story, isn't it? But here's what we need to do with the funny story is, as the younger gangster brother sat on the front row, he got a burst of reality. You see, he had forgotten that not only was his brother in the casket a sinner, but he was a sinner. And this sinner is in need of a savior. This morning, we have heard the taunt song. We have heard how, how God responds to human wickedness. And we've, we've learned repeatedly, he does not sweep sin under the carpet. He deals with it head on. And so what are the lessons as we close this morning that we can tuck away? And there, there are two that I would like to focus on. You remember what Calvin said, the most important things in our lives are, what do we know about ourselves and what do we know about God? And so I'm going to use that model. The first question is this, what can we learn about the human heart from this very interesting story? And there are three lessons. The first lesson is that apart from God and his grace, the human heart will always gravitate towards sin. Please remember this when you do evangelism is that as you talk to your your mom or your dad or your aunt or your uncle or your buddy at school, please remember you are not looking at a good person. Now, they may do do good things. That's, That's acceptable. But deep down, we know from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that their heart is desperately wicked and evil. And so apart from God's grace, the human heart will always gravitate towards sin. My friend Dave Benner said something yesterday in in Iron Man. He said, they are lawbreakers. I was like, Dave, that's it. That's what we need to tell people in evangelism. You have broken God's holy law. The penalty for breaking God's holy law is death. For the wages of sin is death. And so I want to ask this morning, have you come to terms with your sinful heart? Are, Are you like the... The brother, the younger brother gangster, who had not yet realized the sin in his heart, has the taunt song this morning revealed how very rebellious your heart is. Now, in Romans 6.23, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but there's a dot, dot, dot. And most of you know what the dot, dot, dot is. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the first lesson. The second lesson is this. The only thing, and if you're taking notes, you might write capital O-N-L-Y. The only thing, highlight it, make it bold, circle it, put a star around it. The only thing that can subdue the rebel heart is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
The only one who can transform the rebel heart is the Lord Jesus Christ. An illustration just landed on a land, land it plopped onto my desk as I was preparing this sermon. I want to show you a picture of a book that some of you will be familiar with. This is a, a wild, runaway, best-selling Christian book. And anyone listening on a CD later, I'm doing quotes for the congregation. Christian book. Girl, stop apologizing. A shame-free plan for embracing and achieving your goals. This best-selling Christian book is anything but Christian. Let me read a line from the book. Quote, the real, and this is kind of marketed for, for women and girls. The real you is destined for something more. Your version of more. This is who you were made to be. And the first step is to make that vision a reality by stop apologizing for having the dream in the first place. Like Lady Gaga says. <laughs> what? Like Lady Gaga says, like Lady Gaga says, I, you can't make this up. Baby, you were born this way. Someone shoot me. Baby, you were born this way. It's time to become who you were made to be. Close quote. Now, instead of self-denial... That the Jewish carpenter commands, that Jesus commands, the, the message of this author is the message of self-determination. Which in the final analysis, well not in the final analysis, which is, Dan, in your class this morning, I was like, what in the world? Because Dan and I, I promise you, are not in cahoots. We're good friends, but we're definitely not in cahoots because in Dan's class, we learned about Abraham Maslow. Some of you learned about Maslow in a college course or maybe a high school course. You remember the hierarchy of needs? And at the top of the hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. What Del Tackett calls a pernicious lie. And so in the final analysis, this notion of self-determination is the pathway to condemnation. Yet this is a wild, runaway bestseller. There's a great conflict raging on the earth. It is a clash between the proud on the one hand and the faithful on the other. And the boastful and the, the arrogant and the self-reliant and those who are self-determined are on one side, and the righteous place all their reliance on God. Throughout the history of this world, this Almighty God, over and over and over again, resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And may I say, at all due respect, that the human heart does not need any help with self-determination. I don't need to read a book to help me with self-determination. I do it pretty well on my own. It comes naturally because I'm a sinner. 
And so what our hearts need the very most is not a message like this. What our hearts need is the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. So may I say, and may I say to women, because this book is is designated for women, but this applies to everyone, is stop following yourself and stop believing in yourself and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For in following the Lord Jesus Christ is found a life of redemption and forgiveness and wholeness. And without the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be eternally lost. You can be self-determined, but you will be eternally lost. You will bear the weight of all your sin in hell. The same response that God offers the Babylonians is echoing from the throne of heaven right now. In 2019, he's calling the nations to turn from their sin. He's calling the nations to turn to Christ. He's saying this, stop relying on yourself. Rather, deny yourself and set your affection on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many lessons we could glean. But I want to move forward as we close and and ask, what can we learn now about God following Calvin's model? We've learned that God doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. We've learned that he holds sinners accountable for their sin. But there's some other messages, two more in particular. One is a lesson I think you'll find encouraging. It's God always gets the last word. He always gets the last word. Look at verse 14. And the reason I divided this section of Scripture into two so-called acts is because in the middle of these woes, we, we find these massive statements, these affirmations of the Lord. Verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Despite the rampant sin that the living God addresses, sin that hurts and destroys lives, sin that many of you have experienced firsthand, you have been hurt, you have been wounded, And you want God to exert his vengeance, and that is understandable. Remember this, the final chapter of the story has not yet been written. God is not finished. At the end of the age, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Are you looking forward to that day? Doreen and I were were at coffee Friday night and talking about some stuff, and I just said, I'm ready for the new earth. Have you ever gotten there? I'm ready for the new earth when the final chapter will be written. Remember this, sin is not the final authority. God is the final authority. And the final lesson that we can draw, although there are many more, is that God is calling the nations, once again, to humble themselves before him. Go with me to the end of the chapter, at the end of Act 2. And notice what Scripture says. I love the word but. After those woes, but Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. After the Lord taunts these rebellious sinners, he makes sure once again that he gets the last word. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. This renders sinners utterly speechless. They are rendered 
silent before the living God. And the book of Philippians tells us at the end of the age, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. One writer says the infinite distance between the dignity of God and that of all his creatures demands reverent silence before him. I'll close with one question. Has this passage, has this story rendered you silenced before the living God? Please remember that if a woe is pronounced over you, you were doomed. Unless you receive the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were eternally condemned. And as we mentioned before, there's only two kinds of people in this world, the believers and the unbelievers. Those who follow Christ and believe in Christ and those who refuse to believe. And as a result, they refuse to obey. Now, if I asked you to recite John chapter 3, verse 16... Probably 90% of you would know it. But after verse 16, 20 verses later, in verse 36, we read these words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's my privilege to tell you, and it's it's... It's a review for many of you, but it's my privilege to tell someone who's never heard it for the first time that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, to stand in the place of any sinner who chooses to believe. Jesus lived a life that none of us could ever live. He lived a righteous and a holy life, and then he died on a cross. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And this morning, as I was reviewing For this message, the the words in Romans 10 just came echoing in my mind. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, Jesus, when he writes the final chapter and closes the the last page of redemptive history, he will make every wrong right. And we will spend all eternity on the new earth. Please remember that every sin is either punished or forgiven. And my trust is that every person in this room will say, my sin has been forgiven. Not because I've been self-actualized, not because I'm self-determined, not because I pursue my agenda and my goals, but because I have denied myself and I have fallen before the living God in the face of God. I have bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ. I have turned from my sin, and I have turned to Jesus, for salvation is found in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a vivid example of how you respond to human wickedness. Forgive us, Lord, for marginalizing you. Forgive us for domesticating you. Forgive us for erasing any of your attributes. 
Lord, you are holy, 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 and a holy God can never tolerate sin. Holy God, thank you for sending Christ to be the final payment for my sin and the sin of every person who has ever believed. Lord, thank you for granting grace. We know that apart from grace that we are doomed. And so would you encourage this, your people? Would they stand firm in the grace that is theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ? And for any who are unbelievers today, I would challenge you to simply cry out to the living God. God, I'm an extortioner. I'm an idolater. I'm greedy. I lie. I've stolen. I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living a life that I could never live. Thank you for dying a death that I deserve to die. I deserve to hang on the cross. I acknowledge these realities as truth. And I turn from my sin and I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I might have salvation. Thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ. And as we sing of it now, may we delight in you. In Christ's name, amen.